You're listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week before we get to this week's episode, featuring a member of the U.S. Navy who now runs a training and resources department for a nonprofit that I am very familiar with. If you're following the show, you know exactly what nonprofit I am talking about. We'll get to that coming up in a moment. Just a few words before we get the show underway. It's the same usual words, and I have to repeat them every week because you guys aren't doing your job. I kid. But in all seriousness, please follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground at Hazard Ground Podcast. Please Continue to leave us Apple reviews. Give us five stars. Tell us why you love the show. Trying to make our way into the top 100 Apple podcasts. We are getting there slowly, but we need more reviews from you guys. So wherever you download and listen to Apple podcasts, please leave us a brief review. doesn't have to be anything long. Just tell us why you love the show. And certainly give us five stars. We appreciate it. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. Uh, you can go to our website, hazardground.com, and click on the Amazon button at the bottom of the homepage or under the Sponsors tab. And you can do all your normal Amazon shopping. The the button and the link will direct you right to Amazon. Whatever you buy, we'll get a percentage of. And then we take a percentage of that. And we'll donate it back to some of the charities and organizations that you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground. So it's an easy way for you guys to help out veterans and veterans charities just from the comfort and convenience of your own house, your own smartphone, just by shopping at Amazon. And by the way, on your smartphone, it'll redirect you right to the Amazon app so all your credit card information is saved. Very user-friendly. Very easy to do. Again, hazardground.com. Uh, the Amazon button, or under the Sponsors tab. Uh, don't forget to download the Killcliff TV app and follow us on our YouTube channel because that's where you can watch all of the Hazard Ground episodes as well. If you're not uh, subscribed and like our YouTube channel, again, download the Killcliff TV app. And speaking of our friends at Killcliff, of course, partners here with the Hazard Ground podcast. Make sure you go to killcliff.com for all of your clean energy drinks, including your CBD, which you can get at killcliff.com. The Killer Cliff Sickle, absolutely delicious. If you're into CBD, uh, they have a fantastic line. Clean energy drinks, some of the best workout, pre-workout and post-workout drinks that I've ever had. I use them personally. Uh, so again, killcliff.com to get all of your clean energy drinks. And now let's get on with this week's episode featuring a member of the U.S. Navy who spent two years in the Navy, had two deployments to Iraq uh, and Africa. Uh, and then after leaving the military through a rough transition, ended up becoming director of training and resources for Merging Vets and Players. And of course, you've heard me talk about Merging Vets and Players, an organization I'm very familiar with and very proud to be a part of. But let's welcome her into the show. She is Andy Ward here on the Hazard Ground. Andy, welcome and thank you for being here. Thank you so much. I'm uh, very excited to be here. Yeah, uh, we actually had, uh, as you know, uh, one of our other coworkers on, Denver Morris, and uh, you know, Denver loves to talk, so uh, it's great <laughs> to actually. And he he recommended you, believe it or not. Oh, he, thanks, Denver. He did. He said he said Andy's got one hell of a story, uh, <laughs> and so I was excited to hear about it. Um, and certainly one that uh, isn't typical for us because you know, um, as we were talking before we recorded, you know, most of us leave the military, you know, in a sort of a either smooth way or the, you know, like medically, a lot of the people we talk to or whatever, it just kind of happens, you know, naturally. And that wasn't the case for you, but we'll get to that coming up in a minute. Um, but let's start back at the beginning for you. Um, why and how did you end up in the Navy? Um, so, well, I guess my story really starts at the very beginning. Um, I was born into an evangelical Christian cult. Um, I have uh, seven brothers and sisters. Um, and, uh, I mean, I guess I'd get right into it. My dad was uh, sexually abusive. So I 
felt very trapped as a child. Uh, also, on top of that, I was homeschooled um, wow. and we didn't live in a great neighborhood. So I felt extremely trapped in one home. Uh, we couldn't really get out and see friends that often. Um, so my high school years, uh, my whole childhood was like I had my family and that was really my closest friends. Um, of course, there was other kids in the cult, uh, but it was it was this weird combination of being very sheltered, but then also being adult at a super young age. But, um, let me ask you, how did you know at a young age you were in a cult or like you recognize this after the fact? Like, I mean, no one yeah. really ever says, hey, I was in a cult unless you were cognizantly entering into one. Correct. You, so you don't know until you get out. So right. we okay. got out. Uh, so fortunately, um, there is a lot of drama that happened in the cult. Uh, the leader, um, his his son was... Uh, seriously abusing his wife and uh, that came to light and then uh, some other things happened and uh, so when you're in a cult you think like this leader is God and you do whatever they say and there's just so many rules and all these other things Um, and it's like living in an alternate reality Um, so we got out of the cult Uh, it really it shut down so we were like the second wave of people to leave and we got out when I was about 16. Okay. Um, you have to forgive me. This is my first foray into the cult process. Um, when you say we got out, like, did your parents decide to leave or you guys as the kids left? No, my parents, uh, both my parents decided to leave. Um, I actually had some, uh, uncles, cousins, like it was kind of a family thing. Um, so yeah. Where was it? Um, so actually the, the main group was out of Fullerton, California. Um, we had small groups all over the United States. I'm from Omaha, Nebraska. So we had a small group there. Um, we also had, uh, there was groups in China, Africa. Um, so yeah, just see small, small groups based on like the new Testament, uh, and, you lived your whole life just in fear that um, the end of the world is right around the corner and you're about to be persecuted. And so it was just a very strange, strange childhood. Um, and then with my dad on top of that, it was just this, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was really challenging. And, uh, but one thing, it gave me this ability to like, to make something of myself in, in shitty situations, um, so like, I, I hated it. Like we couldn't play sports. I'm very athletic. I love playing sports. Um, fortunately, uh, I've always liked to work out. And, um, I, I remember, uh, my dad found like this weight bench and some weights or something. And so I got, I went to the library and got a book on how to lift weights. And when I was uh, 12, I started lifting in our laundry room with like wet clothes hanging all around me. <laughs> So I was able to, uh, to, you know, continue forward and make progress and try to like have some semblance of a life, even in some of the worst like circumstances or just very claustrophobic circumstances. Yeah. uh, You mentioned the end of the world sometimes feels like we're actually there, um, but (laughs) neither here nor there. Um, Were you the only one being abused by your father or the rest of your siblings were too? Uh, My siblings also, um, uh, most of my siblings were also. Okay. Um, was, were, I mean, were you too young to recognize that it was abuse? I mean, did it seem normal? Yes. Was Um, it like something that went on throughout the rest of the other families in the cult as well or no? Not necessarily. Um, it just, uh, it's, you know, it's hard to know. Right. Sure. It's 
hard to know because it's this hierarchy of uh, that the men were in charge of the family and they could do anything they wanted and women were subservient to them and then children were just, they were just there. Okay. Um, so it just created all of these like, um, you know, closed door situations that could go on and, you know, like uh, the the guy that was uh, beating his wife up all the time, like the leader's son, you know, so um so, yeah, it was just uh, it, you know, led to a lot of abuse possibly happening. Um, when your parents decided to leave, I, I were you relieved? Were you was it uncomfortable? I mean, you had lived this way for so long. There, there may be a sense of fear that there's something different is worse. Um, no, I was so excited okay. to get out. Um, yeah, we had to wear dresses all the time and I could not stand like I would viscerally get angry when I had to put a dress on. <laughs> Um, and so, and also like for me, um, they, like women were created to have kids and, you know, to like make sandwiches for your husband. <laughs> and like, that was so against everything that I ever wanted to do. You know, I wanted to be my own person. I wanted to play sports. They wouldn't let us play sports. Um, where do you think and- that sense of, of individualism and sort of independence came from at such a young age? Um, I guess it was natural. I don't know. Like, uh, that's just, I've always been, I've always, well, I remember, uh, when I was a kid, so we, we were at the, we called the meeting place. We went there often. So we were around other kids in the cult. Um, and I remember all, well, I couldn't relate to the girls, um, cause I didn't go to school. So I remember them sitting there all in a circle around this tree talking about school and stuff. And I was just like, this is so boring. And so I walked over, all the boys were playing soccer and I was like, okay, I'm going to go play soccer. And then it was always like that ever after. So I I, I suppose, I guess being homeschooled was the thing that led you there or, you know, uh, coincidentally. Right. Um, and we found out girls are boring. Yeah. uh, Interesting. (laughs) So, okay. You leave. Um, do you now have a sense of like, Hey, I can do whatever I want with my life. I mean, you're only 16. So have you finished school at this point technically or no? No, I'm still in school. Um, and actually it was, it's funny. It's funny now, but, um, like when, once I turned 18 and was ready to graduate, um, my parents never actually graduated from anyone from homeschool. So I had no idea about how to get into college. I always knew I wanted to, I didn't realize until too late how to get grants or anything like that, um, or apply for financial aid. Um, so I decided to take an extra year in school, um, and I went to a community college and I, cause my, like, I couldn't figure when you're homeschooled, you get a textbook and you have to figure it out and you just go through it and try to learn it. And so science and math were like, it was really hard for me. Um, so I finally went to college and then it, I was like, Oh my God, this is so easy. You have a teacher like explaining (laughs) things to you. I can't believe it. This is awesome. Um, so I guess I, I gained a lot of skills being in that situation because I had to figure out everything for myself. Um, and also I learned a lot of, um, how to work with a team because I have seven siblings. So, um, just basic things like how do we get up in the morning? How do we lay out our day? Um, trying to get, you know, all of these different personalities to like clean the house or something stupid. Um, but that skill was invaluable to me when I joined the military, actually. Uh, not to go back to uh, the painful part, but does the abuse of your father stop when you guys leave the cult or no? 
Um, so my dad, uh, so the way his abuse was more like, uh, pushing on our boundaries. Um, and so, um, I remember he used to, uh, like he would sleep in our beds or he would like hug us all the time when we didn't want it. And he didn't allow us to be like, Hey, I'm uncomfortable. Like, can you just not? Um, and so what that really did is it just set me up, you know, plus being in the cult, like, uh, I didn't know how to say no to men. I didn't know how to be uncomfortable with how I was feeling and like protect myself in that way. So that just like set me up for years and years and years of these struggles. Right. Which I assume didn't help in a male dominated military. No, it didn't. No. <laughs> I uh, fought a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get to that, um, coming up in a moment. Um, did your, was your mother ever aware of what was going on? Um, no, uh, she was dealing with her own struggles of just being, um, like very depressed. Um, the kind of people that went into cults, it's kind of interesting, but usually women are like very successful, very, um, just, uh, can really make it in life. Just have these great personalities. And a lot of times the men are drawn to cults because they want to be able to control, and um, the cults just elevate them to a position they wouldn't naturally have. Um, and so what it does is it pulls these women down and really stomps on them. And then the men are able to have these like, you know, whatever, all this power that they wouldn't naturally have. Um, and so so my mom was super depressed and also really sick. And she had like eight kids. So um, it's just this combination of things. Uh, my dad was psychologically really abusive. Um, he always put us in danger as kids. So she was just terrified out of her mind about just us going anywhere. Um, I remember one story just super vividly of, uh, he took us all out on a walk and we were crossing like four sets of train tracks. And um, when we were getting across the last one, like this train started coming. And so it's like, fine, okay, let's all move across. Well, my youngest brother, who was like a toddler at the time, barely walking, he, for whatever reason, stopped in the middle of the last track. And so I'm standing like right next to my dad and we're like in a couple arms lengths away from him. And this train is coming. He's not moving. This train is coming. He's not moving. My dad is not doing anything. And finally, it's like, there is no time for my dad to do anything. And he's not. So I run out, grab my brother, pull him across. The train goes by. And I, so just that like, do you not have any instinct to protect your kids or like, I don't understand what's happening here. So um, having to be an adult at that young age and feeling like you needed to protect um, the family and like you had these parents who um, just were not there, they were not with it. Uh, And it's because like they joined the cult uh, out of college. And so the cult uh, takes you and puts you in like these training homes and they train you to be these people. But basically what they're doing is they're breaking down who you actually are and making you feel very insecure about your natural, just how way of being. And they try to make you into this uh, person that you're not. Um, anytime a child is born into the cult, they would have this, uh, they call it mat training, where you put them on a mat. If they try to get off, they're like a year or two years old then you would just swat them until they finally broke down and were like, okay, I'm just going to stay on this mat and not move. And I think it took me like three days to finally just, okay, fine. I'm just (laughs) going to stay on this mat, whatever. 
Um, so it's just, uh, it really breaks down like who you are as a person. So going into the military, they play a lot of mind games in boot camp, And for me, I like it, they were laughable because I was just like, all right, I've, I've been here before this is, uh, so I had a lot of skills from growing up that helped me a lot in the military and a lot of things that were super detrimental. Obviously I got out early, so. Um, I want to get to that in a minute. Let me just ask, what is your current relationship with your parents now? Um, so I don't talk to my dad. I haven't talked to him in, uh, in maybe 10 years now, maybe a little bit longer. Um, my mom, I have a great relationship with her. Um, she is a, a great role model for me because she, a lot of kids that, of parents and kids that get into cults, like the parents get in, the kids are born in, a lot of times they are never able to reconcile that relationship. Um, but my mom like went out of her way to try to get all of us help. And she fully recognized her part in things. Um, and what happened was when I was in high school, uh, I didn't know why, but I started getting panic attacks whenever my dad came home. And I really had no idea why this was happening. So I started staying out all night, drinking a bunch. and um, While you're in high school. Yeah. Well, actually, I just graduated. Okay. So I think I I had like my siblings were a little older. I had just finished high school. I think I had uh, like I I was able to stay on this path because I had so many things to do. But once that was gone, um, then you know whatever reason, that's when I started getting panic attacks. And I I didn't understand that what my dad was doing was wrong. Um, because I had no role model of what like an actual dad was like. Right. And so, um, so yeah, so that was a really hard time. It was very confusing. Um, and I didn't have, you know, there was no counselors, like nobody there to that really understood what was going on. Um, so, but my mom, like, she's amazing. She, instead of being like, what is wrong with this girl? She was like, man, what is wrong in our home that she would be doing this? And so she really looked inward and um, just went like went out of her way to make sure that all my siblings got the support they needed. And just as it happened, I was too old. Like I, I was gone. I was done with it. I wasn't I wasn't in a place that I could receive the support that she could give at that point. So um, so my mom and I have reconciled a lot. And then um, obviously the path that I went down with drinking and all trying to like self-soothe and everything um, was really hard for her. Uh, so there was always this, like, she was really, you know, she was prepared that one day she's going to get that phone call that like I was dead. And so that really strained our relationship, obviously, because she was so worried about me and I just couldn't tolerate it. And, um, so it was after I finally got sober that, uh, we've been able to like actually have a really great relationship. So are your parents still together? No, no. Um, yeah, they divorced, uh, when I was in college, because okay. um, we were like, mom, when are you going to get rid of this guy? <laughs> um, and then that's when, because she really had the mindset of like, I want to stay together for the kids. Um, and unfortunately, after they divorced, like he started losing that control and he started getting more like violently abusive to my little brothers. Um, so that was, you know, a whole nother thing. Well, aside from, you know, everything we do here on the show, I mean, you know, um, I don't even apologies and like the right thing I want to do. I just want to say, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but I, I commend your courage and your strength. And, 
and your family's courage and strength to to move beyond all that. It's never easy. There are countless stories of familial abuse like that, parental abuse and spousal abuse that end horribly. Uh, and just a credit to you, your siblings, your mother for uh, persevering through it all and, and, and pushing on to something better. So I, I, I commend you as a coworker friend and somebody who's here on the show. I certainly, you know, uh, tip of the cap, you know, just uh, that's amazing. I'm, I'm, it, your strength is incredible. So um, it's, it just, it just, you know, it's obviously worth stating out loud. Okay. Um, so you're post high school, you start drinking, um, you're in this down the, going down this bad road. Does the bad road lead to the Navy? Does the Navy find you kind of how to, how does all this unfold? Um, so I go to college, uh, where to I, college? Yes. I where? Do, uh, oh, I go to a uh, university of Nebraska at Lincoln. Okay. Um, so 45 minutes away from Omaha, uh, just enough space. Um, I go to college. I have a full-time job. I, uh, am in school full-time and I still go out every night and like get obliterated. And the problem sounds like a blast when you're in college. (laughs) It was great. It was great, but it was like, it was so, cause I feel like I did the same thing, but different. When I drink, I black out. Yeah. I didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, so that was, therein lies the problem. Uh, I had a lot of fun, uh, and I ended up in a lot of really shitty situations because I blacked out and I, when I black out, like I climb things, I fight people, um, like, you know, I'm not a quiet blackout person. So, um, which I don't know if anybody is, but, uh, so I ended up in a lot of, um, shitty situations and then, um, so I went to arrested shitty situations. No. Uh, well, no. Oh, okay. I, you managed to avoid that. Yes, I did. Okay. <laughs> I went to detox a couple times, but like Lincoln, they're used to college kids doing that. You know what I mean? So they're not, um, I never, I never like broke into anything or, you know, committed a crime other than drinking. No, but sometimes drink. fights can lead to just cops being there and handcuffs yeah. on you and throw you in the back yeah. of the paddy wagon and the whole nine. <laughs> that didn't happen until the military. Actually. Oh, okay. So we, we waited for the good story. Yeah. We, oh, waited, yeah, we, we yeah. waited, we waited for it to really count when they can really yeah. stick it to you. Yeah. Good job. Exactly. <laughs> Unfortunately. Uh, so I ended up, I wanted to be a cop. That's what I was going to school for, for criminal really? justice. Yeah. Um, because I, I was looking for, I was looking for that family. Like I was right. looking for a, a team where I, that had my back. And I was also wanted to be in a place where fitness mattered and where fitness could help propel you to the top and where you get to work with people and, um, all of these different things. So, uh, I, so criminal justice, I was thinking um, what a better way to prepare for being a cop than by breaking the law. At least you get to get, you know, yeah, up close right? and personal <laughs> with them. You know I mean? That, that seemed to have made sense to me, but uh, you know, most people don't go that route. Well, on my third, uh, minor in possession of alcohol, I was like in a very short period of time. Um, I was like, all right, this is not, this is not going to work. Um, <laughs> I had a roommate at the time who was actually in the Air Force and he just bought a house like he had health care. Um, and I should mention, like, I didn't grow up. My parents were very poor, plus they had eight kids, so didn't really have uh, money to cover the bills every month. Um, so I knew that I wasn't going to get support for college or for um, I knew that healthcare would be a thing like all of these things. So the military was very uh, attractive to me. Um, so I actually went to the air force. I was going to join there. I was wanted to be an MP. Thank God that didn't happen. Um, 
And uh, I came in one day and I was like, I just got another drinking ticket last night. And he was like, well, I can't help you, but I can walk you down. He walked me next door to the Navy's like the, they can take you. Oh, God. <laughs> Recruiting stories. I, I can't tell you how many of them that we hear on this show that are just like, man, it, it's it's amazing how. They're so similar yet so different, you know. I mean, it's the kid walks in and and I want to be this guy. Well, I'm not available, but that guy's over here, or you know, yeah. uh, the, the Navy guy's out to lunch. Next thing you know, I'm in the Air Force, or exactly. like you just said, the Air Force guy. We can't take it because you got a drinking problem, but the Navy will absolutely have you. Absolutely. So uh, yeah, they're like, oh, you'll fit in great here. <laughs> um, so I actually had an awesome recruiter. I know a lot of people don't have great recruiters, but. Um, I was like, he fully understood that if I stay, like I need to get out right away or I was going to get more drinking tickets. So I think it was maybe two weeks and I was shipped out to, uh, to boot camp. Um, he put me with the CBs, which, uh, I thank him forever for. So I got to be part of the construction battalion, which was right up my alley. I absolutely yep. loved it. And, I deployed uh, with CBs actually, on my first deployment. You what? I deployed with CBs on my first uh, deployment. Yeah. Very, very unique bunch of folks. Very, yeah, very, very good at what they do. But it is a different, it's like not even really the military to a certain extent. Yeah, they are true. they are their own entity. It's like a bunch of yeah. union guys working together, you know? Like, it's really what it is. So. Um, and actually, I thought of joining the military out of high school. So I had an army recruiter over, um, was trying to recruit me. Uh, I scored really high on the ASVAP. So um, they, so, but I remember him showing me the list of like jobs I could choose. And I said, well, what are all these stars? And he's like, oh, that, those are jobs women can't have. And I was like, oh, <laughs> nope, I'm sorry. I can't join the army. Um, so that's what I loved about the Navy was there is so many, there's so many like opportunities for technical jobs that women can do. And that right. was exactly what I was looking for. Um, so yeah, so it worked out. Did you tell your parents? Um, no, I didn't. I, I mean, they ended up knowing. Oh, you're over 18. So you didn't need their permission. So it didn't matter. Yeah. I was 20 when I joined. Okay. So, um, my dad didn't know. Uh, I did. I told my mom like after the fact, uh, but my mom was like, uh, so I ended up shipping off to Iraq was my first duty station. And my mom said, uh, she, you are safer in Iraq than you were here. So um, she was like very happy for me to jo- join the military. And um, yeah, hopefully it would be, I mean, I, I was hoping it would, you know, change my life around because obviously uh, I need a challenge and I need a goal and working full time, going to school full time wasn't enough to like, curtail the drinking um so i i wanted to be part of something uh i mean really i wanted i thought when i joined the military that i could finally be part of a team that would really have my back that like i could pour everything into this i could work really hard and uh that they would see me for that and they would support me and they we would protect each other basically um and why do uh, I get the sense that you that you didn't end up getting that feeling the way you're talking about it? <laughs> no, yeah. Unfortunately, that is not what happened. Okay. Um and uh and that like really that really crushed me because that was that was kind of my well, because I had dealt with a lot of I was raped multiple times in college and before I went to college. Now is that um, is that through the blackout stuff? 
and other things. Um, and, and also because I wasn't able to like say no to people. So I would just pretend I was sleeping and that wasn't, that wasn't effective. Um, so it was really, uh, I was really in a bad spot. Like I didn't have any tools to, um, to like work with people or to protect myself. And I drank a ton. So I was always in these like really shitty situations with really shitty people. Um, so I joined the military best thing I ever did. Um, but it also, that was kind of like the final nail on my coffin of like, okay, nobody is going to support you. Like you are going to have to deal with people making advances at you all the time. And no matter what a good worker you are or how much you like care about people or whatever, um, you're always going to have to be fighting off people. Like that's just, that's your life. Um, so yeah, that was very, it was really hard on me. Uh, Um, well, let me ask if you didn't have that roommate that was in the air force, do you think you would have still ended up in the military? Um, I might have, uh, yeah, because just a little more circuitous path. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Um, I mean, you know, I always wanted to play sports like that was my dream, but uh, I wasn't able to actually play sports until I was uh, 16. So obviously you're not going to be that good. Um, And so the military or I I wanted to be part of the cops, right? So the military was the second choice. So maybe I would have ended up there uh, eventually. Um, But I think it just worked out really well that, you know, everything kind of lined up like that. Okay. Um, I want to kind of go through the experience of basic training and everything else, but there's one more thing you got to reconcile for me. You said military was the best choice you ever made, and yet it led to so much disappointment. How does that work? Um, Well, so before I joined the military, I was crashing and burning. Like I was, Mm -hmm. uh, I was doing fine in school, uh, but not getting great. I was getting like B's. Um, And then I kept getting fired from jobs because I was drinking Um, and then I was getting, I was racking up, like, uh, I was racking up drinking, you know, violations with the law. Uh, I should have become a bartender. You can drink there and not have have an issue. You picked the wrong job. (laughs) Not when you black out though. Oh, well, you know, (laughs) blacking out, that really fucks you up. Yeah, Um, There's one little hiccup in your whole plan. Yeah. Uh, and then I got kicked out of my roommate's house, the one that was in the air force, because just some shit went down. And, um, and I was like, you know, when you black out and you do shit and you wake up and you're like, God damn it, what did I do last night? And so, um, I knew that I needed like a mission and a purpose and like a team to be part of. Um, so the military gave me that, uh, and, uh, and the military set me up. Like if I w- hadn't joined the military, I wouldn't have been able to be part of merging bets and players. I wouldn't have had access to all of these, like there's so much healing out there for military. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wouldn't have had access to all that. Uh, and like the military gave me a reason to be proud of myself and proud of, you know, what I had done. And it gave me a place to use my skills, uh, and a place to be, you know, an accomplished person. I mean, I, I I can't get over uh, just we had to get through to get you into the military. I mean, that's uh, that's quite the road. Um, so does basic training sober you up at all just by the fact that there's none available to you? Yeah, for sure. Um, because I can uh, if I have like an overwhelming purpose, 
like, yeah, I can, I can not drink. That's fine. So basic training, um, actually basic training was, was funny because I, when I knew I was going to join the military, I started working out like a ton. Um, and I was already working out, but I started running a lot more and like doing all this stuff to be ready for basic training. And then I get there and I find out I'm in much better shape than most of the people there. And so my chiefs were actually like, you can't go work out. We need you to stand watch because we need them to get in shape for the PFT. And so, um, yeah, so I, I was the kid like doing pushups on the side of their bed at night because I was losing all this muscle mass in boot camp. Um, so boot camp was, um, you know, it was just another one of those shitty experiences to buckle down and get through. Was the discipline and being told what to do a problem? Were you resistant to authority? Um, so I was resistant to authority, but only, uh, so that's a, a kind of a longer question. Um, I am not resistant to being told what to do if I understand a purpose for it. Um, and so what happened in, in boot camp, which it's kind of, you're a boot, you don't get to have a purpose in life. Your purpose (laughs) is just to do what you're told. (laughs) No, I, uh, I can create a purpose out of anything. You know what I mean? And I can see like, uh, I was a little older, right? So I was 20. Uh, I could see the purpose for why they were having us do certain things. So I understood it. And so because of that, I was able to get through it. I wasn't like, oh, why are they making us do all these things? I really understood. And so I, you know, and I was conditioned my whole life to fall in line and just, you know, take steps forward. And I'm also the kind of person that does really well with routine. And I can, you know, wake up early, you know, do this, do that, do that. And I'm not going to go crazy because I have this boring routine that I just have to get through. Um, And I knew there was an ending to it. So uh, another thing is, um, they put me on ship staff, which, uh, because it's the Navy, uh, all of our birthing was called a ship. And so they had this group of people that they'd have clean the ship at the end of the night. Um, so that gave me a chance to get away. Everyone else would be like folding clothes, doing something really stupid. And we were able to kind of be on our own Island, uh, cleaning the ship. And so um, that happened a few times in the military where I didn't have to because they recognized like my leadership ability and my ability to get things done without supervision. Um, I was often put in these roles where I could actually have a purpose instead of doing mindless things. Okay. Um, So all this stuff that you, you have now dealing with in boot camp. Um, do you feel like you're in a better spot than where you were as a, as a younger person? I, I guess like you start to meet new people and everything. Like it seems like you didn't have a chance to make friends or do like normal things that kids did growing up. Did you get that experience now in the Navy through boot camp? Um, a little bit. Uh, I, because of how I grew up, like I was more focused on the task and the mission than like making friends. Right. And I made friends easily, but also I was, um, I never wanted like deep connections. I like to have a lot of surface friends that we don't know anything about each other. Um, so the military was perfect for that, uh, because I was able to, I mean, being a female, you stand out in the military, so you get a lot of attention. So you can make a lot of friends easily that way. 
And then I was always really, I was always a high performer in PT. So that also brings you a lot of those kind of friends. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when you also score high on your tests and you're, when you're able to perform in the military, you make a lot of friends, um, but they're not, uh, they're not like deep friends, which is, was exactly what I wanted. Um, you had mentioned that, you know, you had suffered abuse in the military as well. Did it happen at basic? No, it happened okay. when I got through A school. I was just, I was just curious if it, ha- if that, if it early on that happened there by an instructor yeah. or something. I mean, usually that's typically the, the power scenario, right? Uh, it's an instructor and a private, and and you know where a lot of the genesis starts. Um, okay, so after you finished, yeah, I had great instructors in, uh, in, in boot camp um, because I, I told them that I, I didn't know where my dad lived, so that put me on their radar immediately to like start when I went into boot camp and you're going through all those tests and all that stuff. So they, they started trying to dig deeper. They sent me to like uh, the psychologist and stuff like that. I also said that I drink five beers a day, which is over what the military considers to be uh, <laughs> abusing alcohol. And yeah. I was like, I drink 15 beers a day. So if I say five, that'll be cool. Um, and so, <laughs> so, uh, if I cut it down yeah, by like two thirds, I'll be good. Yeah. I didn't I go from wrong. six to two. I went from 15 <laughs> to five. Good job. Um, so, so yeah, so that immediately like put me on their radar. So, uh, they actually tried to hold me in boot camp to go through like some alcohol training, but fortunately, I think I you had enough training with alcohol. I don't think you need any right? more. Yeah. I don't think you need <laughs> so, any more. Fortunately, my chief was like, look, they haven't sent orders for this. You just go, go get into the military, do what you need to do. Um, so I was, I was lucky to have a good chiefs in uh, boot camp. So a school is sort of like your follow on training after boot camp, right? To get you your military occupational specialty for those civilians listening and non-Navy folks, because no one really knows your <laughs> lingo. Yours is always so different. Um, all right. Where is a school? Uh, so Wichita Falls, Texas. Really? Oh, yes. Yeah. So we're on a CBs are trained on a Air Force Base, which okay. is really nice uh, in the middle of nowhere of Texas. OK, uh, so get me through this experience. Now you have to learn a skill. Are you handy to begin with? Yes. Uh, okay. So on the on the ASVAP, I scored really high in mechanical aptitude, which uh, uh, that was a surprise to me. But it shouldn't have been because my uh, dad's family, like they have an electronics business. Um, so I guess it just runs in my family. All my brothers now are engineers. Well, four, four of them are and three of them are engineers. So it just runs in our family on. Um, I loved it. It was, uh, I love working with my hands. And so doing construction was the perfect job for me. And I love to be an electrician because nobody tried to tell you what to do. Um, so even you'd get these high ranking guys come look over your shoulder and they had no idea what you were doing. So I loved right. it. It was insane. Okay. Um, I don't want to focus on it, but I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, as far as the abuse is concerned, when it happens, like, does the light eventually go on? Like, when does the light go on for you that all this stuff is wrong and it needs to change? Well, a couple of things were hard was uh, the whole, like, not wanting to do what people said. So I was very, like, oppos- oppositional, like, defiant. Um, but it was because I had a lot of uh, the instructors, like, hitting on me. And so I, to me, 
because of growing up in the cult and having like men just tell you to do these like arbitrary things um to me like I did not tolerate that well I was like you can't hit on me and then ask me to do like these dumb things that have no purpose um so so it's kind of you've kind of felt like if if you're going to do quid pro quo like at least make the quo worth it right like it's you know Going to pick up papers is not worth it. Uh, Whereas, you know, if you give me an assignment that has X, Y, and Z with all these vehicles or whatever, it's it's worth your time, so to speak. No, it wasn't like that. It was like uh, walking across the grass, like things like that. Uh, Uh, Okay, I see. There's so many dumb, like as as a 21-year-old, like so many dumb rules that the military has um, that I didn't like – I didn't like being held to those rules when the leaders were also hitting on me because to me, I was like, I'm here to work. I'm very professional. I want to like, I want to get shit done. And I don't have like a high tolerance for this. And also some of them what was happening was like, some of them, I was struggling. You could tell I was struggling on. I, well, I got raped. Like I got raped by three people uh, early on in a school. And it was one person that I was hanging out with. I don't know if I just drank too much or if they gave me something, but um, yeah, I passed out. And then they told all, they told people like on the quarter deck when I got back. So I didn't know that it happened, but then they told everybody about it. So um, I just pretended that it didn't happen. But to me, that was like, it was, it was like this, it was with this guy that I would have never slept with. Um, because he was married and he had caused the trick to go on restriction because they were messing with each other. So it was just like, I was so, um, I was really just pissed off and, um, I, I, I just wanted to forget about it, but I was really mad at the guy that I had been kind of going out with that he was cool to like, let his friends come over. Um, so so that was when I was like, well, shit, people that I think are cool, like they're not, they, they're all just dogs. Um, so then I just became like, you know, then I was just like, fuck it. This is not, you know, I'm still here. Like I'm still, I love the work. Um, I love having a purpose. I love having a mission. I love being, I love being part of the military. Like I would stand in muster in the morning and just be like, I feel so proud to be part of this community um as silly as it sounds like I yeah love- it's a strange juxtaposition I also <laughs> yeah. that much it's like I hate that I'm standing here but I'm so proud to that I'm doing this and uh and able to like make a difference in the world um sure. that was a really cool thing about being a CB is like you could see you know one day you come up there's nothing and then all of a sudden there's buildings there and um so that was really cool to be able to do that so it was all of these kind of conflicting things of, um, of, you know, fighting people off, uh, and then, you know, just loving to, I loved the aspect of being able to PT and, uh, you know, all of that. And then, um, being able to gain competencies and get better at being an electrician and, um, and being able to move up in rank and work with people. And there is, uh, you know, just all of these opportunities for advancement and to really throw yourself into things. So I loved that. Um, yeah. Well, okay. So uh, let's move past that. I, I mean, I, I'm sure it'll unfortunately resurface, but yeah, after a school, you said you went right to Iraq as your first duty station. 
When do you yeah. get there? When do you get there? And, and what are you told as far as your mission is concerned? So I'm not sure if, uh, I'm not sure if, cause I got in trouble a couple times for <laughs> drinking in school. <laughs> um, unfortunately, uh, and I'm not sure if they planned it because CBs can either get sent to Mississippi or to Port Wyneme, but they, I'm not sure if they planned it or if it happened randomly, but my battalion was already in Iraq. And that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me was that I got sent to California for two weeks. We did some training and then I was sent immediately over to join my battalion in Iraq. And uh, so I got to, I can't remember how long I was there because they were already there. CBs usually do six month, I believe six month deployments. Mm -hmm. It could be wrong, but, and then sometimes it obviously gets extended on both ends. So it could be like six to eight months or something. Um, So I'm not sure how long I was in Iraq, but. um, Do you remember when you got there? I got there, I believe it was in July sometime. Of what year? of it was 2008 okay so it was like june or july i think it's hard to say it was very hot um and uh so i went over with a couple a couple of uh my friends from um school and uh we joined our battalion and shortly after i got there um maybe a month or so i was sent to a really big project out in uh it was called bp tripoli Um, And it's one of the bigger projects that we got to do in Iraq. Uh, And so I was so fortunate to be able to be there, be sober, and to just be great at my job. And so my whole command got to know me for like four to five months as just a real hard charger, someone who, uh, without any of the issues that came with me drinking. Um, So it was great being out there. There was maybe... We had, uh, when we got there, there was like 20 people. Um, It was a small little Marine outpost and we built it up to like a 300 or 400 man camp. Um, And that was a really cool project to be part of. Are you in harm's way at any point in time while you're there? Or, I mean, are you guys getting mortared or anything? Or are you outside the wire or? Yeah, so BP Tripoli was outside of the wire. It's on the uh, Frades River, I believe. Um, So, uh I mean, we were there in 2008, right? So there's always that chance that you might get a roadside bomb or something crazy. Um, Our battalion, actually, while we were outside the wire, they got mortared. And the mortar went into their smoke pit where everybody gathered in the morning. And fortunately, it didn't go off or, like, it would have been a disaster. Um, So, you know, we were there during that time when, like, there's chances for shit to happen, but it's not as dangerous as it was previously. Um, right before we left, the camp was mortared. Uh, we, you know, we get small arms fire sometimes on our convoys, but there is nothing crazy. Um, but still you're wearing your full gear. You have your M16s. Um, they did on the camp that we were at, they did find a sniper's nest, like on the other side of the river. Um, and then we got Intel that our camp was going to be overrun and we only had, uh, we only had 150 cal. Like we were very unprepared. None of us, only one of us CBs has ever actually been in real fire. So that was like, that was pretty nerve wracking, but we're like, fuck it. We're here. What up? We'll do what we can. Um, so, but yeah. How long you said four or five months in Tripoli. Do you go back to the States right after that at BP, after you finish up at BP Tripoli? 
So I think I spent maybe one or two months in, in BP Tripoli. We went and did that project because okay. we'll, we'll be based out of like a main base. So we are based out of Ramadi and then they send people on small uh, projects. Um, so then we came back and then we did projects around the camp, um, you know, building up the camp, stuff like that. Uh, we got home, I believe in October. Uh, I remember I spent my birthday that year home. So I think it was sometime in October. Okay. Uh, you get back from this deployment. Um, is anything different or you just start drinking again? <laughs> uh, I start drinking again. Um, uh, but I, the fortunate thing about me is I really love PT. So I started getting to that point where like I couldn't drink heavily at night and still PT in the morning. So I was like, all right, I'm only drinking on weekends. So I was like, it was just weird. I thought you were going to say I'm only having five beers as opposed to 15. <laughs> yeah, no, that wasn't possible. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so it was this weird, like, uh, super determined, very regimented person during the week. Like, I got up at, uh, I got up at, like, 3.30 a.m. I would run to 24-hour fitness. I would work out. I would run back. I would PT with my battalion. I would, uh, and then, so fortunately in uh, Homeport, <laughs> They made me the adjutant, which super boring admin job, but it gave me a job to do during the day when a lot of the other guys were just sitting around doing nothing. And I cannot tolerate doing nothing. You like, give me something to do that has a purpose, please. Um, so that was, I was very lucky in Homeport to like go in. I actually had a job to do. Um, and uh, yeah, so I do that, you know, for half the day, take college classes, whatever, like I had a purpose, I had a mission, I had goals that I was going towards. And then on the weekend, I would just cut loose and because I, I wasn't sleeping, I was having really bad nightmares, um, had a lot of anxiety. And so I could only tolerate uh, not drinking for maybe like four to five days, then I'd have to I would black out kind of reset and then be good for the next week. So it just, it wasn't sustainable. Uh, and I, I was seen, I was in counseling, I was trying to do stuff, but I, I really didn't know what was wrong with me or, uh, or how to make like the bad memories and the nightmares and all that go away. Bad memories and nightmares from everything, like the, the last 10 years of your entire life, or just specifically things that happened in the Navy or overseas. Um, so it, it started, uh, it was more towards the the Navy and overseas okay. and just always feeling like I had to protect myself. Um, and so it even became a joke. Like, and I, I did, you know, now that I'm done a lot of healing and stuff, I realized how the way I was being brought this on myself, but um, like we would be out partying and someone would say like some really sexist shit to me. And I would be like, dude, I'm going to punch you in the face, like get away from me. They wouldn't. So I would punch them in the face and then it became like this joke. So I was always punching people. And meanwhile, doing this amongst all of my friends, right? And so nobody ever stepped up and was like, hey, just don't, don't stop, like stop punching friend. your friends. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, stop talking shit to me. Well, that's true. Um, yeah. That would be so the easy part. I, like, I didn't punch people for no reason. I only punched people that, like, you know, said like some real like, you know, inappropriate lewd shit to me. Like I didn't tolerate that very well, especially when I was drinking. Um, and nobody ever stood up for me because they were like, it's funny. She's got it. Like she can easily protect herself. 
So I totally know how I was creating this persona of this really tough person. Um, like when I was in Iraq, I, when I got there, I didn't know anybody. I'm very standoffish if I don't know you. Um, and, uh, I noticed that all of the guys were really teasing all of the girls. And I was like, what the fuck is going on right now? And someone like, I didn't know any of these guys. Someone came up and like tightened my hard hat in the back. And that's like really shitty to do. So I backfisted them in the face without even knowing who it was. And then not like 20 minutes later, no, 10 minutes later, I walked into this Connex box. This is my first day. And as I walk out, some guy fake punches me in the stomach and I punch him for real, like in the solar plexus. And so he starts like walking away coughing. And I'm just like, what is happening right now? And so I got this reputation pretty quickly of like, don't fuck with that girl, um, which is exactly what I wanted. Uh, so, so it just, I created this persona of like, do not fuck with me. And if you do, I will react. Like you can't get away with fucking with me. And so nobody ever stood up to protect me because they were like, oh, she's got it. It's fine. So it was very, um, when I deployed to Africa, for no reason, mid-deployment, I started getting super high heart rate. Like my heart was pounding on my chest and I had no idea why, but it was just a common, like a accumulation of everything that I was going through. Um, and being like, I'm a kind of a small person. So always feeling like I have to like stand up and protect myself against these pretty big people, um, was very stressful for me. I mean, you know, I'll ask the question now, but you know, obviously the benefit of hindsight being 2020, you know, this is like a freshman psych 101 diagnosis here, you know, like the lack of protection from your parents and everybody who is the authority figure is supposed to watch over you has led you into this road where all you ever do is lash out to protect yourself, which again, makes total sense. But you know, obviously the actions and the execution of it make it worse for you than actually make it better. Um, And all these things that people noticed about you, did anybody ever notice you're drinking and go, Hey, Andy, stop drinking. So I actually had, um, I was very familiar with the DAPA, which I don't know if everyone, if it's the same for everyone, but they're the drug and alcohol, like prevention people. So, Mm -hmm. um, my command through the whole time really did try to support me and they didn't know how. So they tried to send me to rehab, but then it got cut short in the middle of it because it was like over Christmas So like people tried to help me. I went to a therapist, but it just wasn't working because what I really needed was like deep trauma work. Like I just sitting and talking with someone was not helping me because I was still in this environment where I had to protect myself and I had to be on and like, you know, have have this really tough persona. Um, So yeah, like they, so people definitely noticed uh, but also like, let's be real. I was part of the CVs. I, I, my drinking may have been ridiculous, but like I was by far not the most ridiculous person. No. There, so, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you probably fit right in really. Uh, no, no, yeah, no one there was going to tell you to slow down. That's for sure. <laughs> um, so you mentioned the Djibouti, the deployment to Africa. How quickly after Baghdad does that happen? Um, so I was in Ramadi in, in or, Iraq. Ramadi, sorry. You know, I can't remember the exact time, but uh, it was in the following year. Okay. So I can't remember if we were home ported for eight months or longer, um, but it was 2009 that I went to Africa. Okay. How long are you there for? Um, that's a good question. I have it written down. I, I believe like six to seven months in Africa. 
for somebody who has so much um, drive for purpose, did you feel like, what the hell's going on in Africa? Why am I going there? There's nothing actually going on in Africa. No, because uh, as a CB, our purpose was to build bases. Okay. Um, so what we did in Africa was uh, winning hearts and minds, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, so we built- Worked uh, well in Iraq and Afghanistan from what I recollect. What? I said oh, worked yeah. well in Iraq and Afghanistan from what yeah, I recollect. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, in Africa, we're over there because we're supporting these nations because if they ever break out in civil war, like we do not want to be part of that. We want the nations that we supported to, you know, have our interests in mind and you know, do what we want. Um, and then also the Horn of Africa is, you know, just a really important shipping, uh, situation. So we're there also. So as a CB, our job was, um, to support the troops. Uh, so, you know, when the whole thing happened with, in Afghanistan, I feel very lucky because I never questioned my purpose there because my purpose was always to support the troops. And like what we did as CBs is we went out to a hostile environment and we made it somewhat livable. Like we brought showers, we gave you a place inside that you could eat your meals. And um, in uh, Tripoli, we actually built, uh, it was a lot of work, but we built uh, large birthing areas that were bunkers. So you didn't even have to leave your bunker if you're getting bombed. Um, So, uh, and I could see, like I brought AC, you know, plumbing, all of these things uh, to the troops. So you could see uh, how your work was affecting other people. So I know what my purpose was there. And um, I'm really proud of like the work that we did. Uh, How does uh, the deployment go and how does it end the one to Africa? In Africa. So um, actually it was really cool. I got to go to Uganda to be part of Operation Natural Fire which we bring together five African nations. The Marines teach them. I, it, I think it's the Army. The Army and the Marines teach them how to shoot. And then, um, so I was part of like, I, I think a five-man team where our job was to supervise the building of the camp. Uh, it was a very officer-heavy environment. Uh, there was hardly an enlist there. Um, so we supervised- Sure, that must have been great for you. Uh, it was kind of great because, <laughs> you know, we're like attached to this Army unit. Uh, the- it was a CE one, um. So that's like a E six. No, a E, yeah, E six. Um, he was super cool. So he was very much like, do your job, enjoy yourself, whatever. Um. So yeah, it was really fun. Uh, it was a great experience to like get because in Africa we never got or not Africa in um Iraq we were never around the people. Uh, so we didn't really get to experience the culture very much, except to we worked on a couple of Saddam's palaces. Um, but in Africa, we really got to be immersed in with the Ugandan people. And that was such a cool experience. Um, so, yeah, I went and uh, we were actually stuck in a hotel for like a month uh, because they were waiting to get approval for it. So it was kind of like a vacation in the middle of a deployment. Um so that was an awesome experience. Got to go whitewater rafting on the Nile, which is probably the coolest thing I've ever done. Wow. Um, yeah, it was great. And our guide, we were on like the adventure raft. So our guide flipped us every time and it was the coolest experience ever. Um, so then I go back to Djibouti, which is where we're stationed. Um, and it ended up being like the beginning of the end. Um, I ended up uh, well, that's when I started getting the, you know, I guess panic attacks is what right. I was getting. So um, also my grandpa died, who I was really close to. Um, 
and I got the Red Cross message. He was sick. He had colon cancer. Um, and I asked my command if I could go home and they said no. And that was like, um, and I know now being older, like, and, you know, understanding the situation more, I, I know that they rarely send people home if it's not your actual, you know, direct person. But, you know, to me, it was like, my grandpa is closer to me than my dad. Like, right. Um, so like my grandparents were the only semblance of normalcy growing up. Um, so to have him die and then me not be able to go see him or go mourn him was really hard on me. Um, I actually took my computer and went up to the DFAC every day, uh, just waiting for that email that like he was dead. Um, so even though uh, we did have access to phones in my deployment, I told my family like, oh, we have no access to phones. Like I didn't want to talk to them. I was very much tunnel vision of, I just want to be here and not deal with any of the feelings that come up when I think about my family. Um, so my grandpa died. Um, I was having panic attacks, I guess. Uh, they put me on Zoloft and had me talk to like this older gentleman who was there. And that was their solution for what I was going through. And then also they said, oh, you have, so I went to him and I said, look, um, well, what happened was I was drinking at the bar. The next day, someone said, hey, you punched a warrant officer in the face last night. And I was like, what? And there was like, yeah, he grabbed your ass, he punched you in the face. And then, so I was like, I really had this feeling of that my luck is about to run out. Like I need to, I need to get some help. Like, obviously I'm freaking struggling here. Um, or so just punched I, enough people that eventually someone's going to be pissed <laughs> off and not let it happen anymore. So yeah, right? you finally punched yeah. the wrong person. So, uh, so I, uh, I told my command that like, look, I'm having a drinking problem. And so their response was, okay, you can't drink anymore. And so for me, that was like, uh, of course you did that. Right. But for me, well, that doesn't help me because I drink to function. Um, I have to drink every week or I can't function. And so uh, I went like two or three weeks without drinking. And then I went out and like the army had brought in some liquor. So I got wasted and I was walking back to my uh, clue and there was a whole smoke pit full of Marines. And they, I guess they started, you know, calling me a whore, all this stuff. And like, I don't take kindly to that. So I walked up and like <laughs> got in their face. And uh, um, so we ended up getting in a fight and uh so they actually pushed me first. And then, so I grabbed them, like they pushed me over a bench. I grabbed them and pulled them over with me. And it just was like a, you know, stupid drunk tussle on the ground. Someone got scared and pushed like this panic button. And I guess this is the only time in the whole deployment that button ever worked. And uh, <laughs> like just my luck. So the cops come, you know, I've hit my head. I'm like, almost blacked out, like very agitated, super drunk. Um, the cops came and they told the cops they didn't touch me, that I had just started attacking them. Uh, I don't Very believable it. story, by the way. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. No, but the cops like- One five five hundred pound girl attacks seven <laughs> dudes and, and she wins. Yeah, very believable. <laughs> it was uh, just my luck. It was a female cop, an off-duty female cop that responded to the call and- uh, and so um, apparently she did believe them. So they uh, they go, I'm in my clue. They're questioning me. Like, I cannot sit still. I'm very agitated. And I remember my chief being like, you need to sit down and calm down or they're going to take you away in handcuffs. And I just could not. Um, 
So like the best thing to do when I'm drinking is to just leave me the fuck alone. Do not get in my face. And uh, unfortunately, that is the opposite of what was happening. And so I go away in handcuffs from this whole thing. And of course, I'm not supposed to be drinking. So that was like, that was kind of the end. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so then I end up, you know, captain's mast, like the whole nine yards. This is my second captain's mast, I think. Wow. Um, and my third alcohol related incident. So I was like, so unfortunately, I had this background in criminal justice. So I understood how the law worked on the outside of the military, but I didn't really understand that that didn't translate to the military. <laughs> yeah. So, UCMJ um, is a different beast. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, and plus I'm a very like literal logical person. So um, it, so I didn't understand. And I thought that things were more like the law outside. And so, and plus it was my third alcohol related incident. So I was like, I need to talk to a lawyer because I didn't remember what happened. Right. And I knew that these guys were going to make up a story and I couldn't just be like, Hey, I have no idea what happened. They're probably right. You know? So, um, he's like, just plead the fifth, don't say anything. And so I, I got into more trouble probably because I did that, but I didn't feel like I could tell my command. I don't know what happened. And of course they would just have to go with whatever they said. Um, and then the fact that I was legally not supposed to be drinking. Um, so I go, I get on restriction right before we leave country. Um, we get back into uh, the United States. My battalion goes on leave. They put me with another battalion on their restriction crew. And uh, mentally, I just couldn't handle beyond being on restriction because they wouldn't let us work out. I had no job. I had no purpose. Um, they were messing with my meds. Uh, not on purpose, but like, I just, I was on like Zoloft and I kept missing doses. And so it was just like, I had horrible nightmares. Um, so I started sneaking alcohol on restriction. Um, and then one day, uh, I was sitting, I, I had gone out, went drinking. I came back, uh, we had to go to breakfast and the, one of the, the, whoever was watching us, guarding us, he said something to me like that made me really pissed off. And so I just got up and I walked out and I was still kind of drunk at this point. And I walked into like this closet and he never saw me go in there. So I go in there, I pass out. The whole command ends up looking for me. Like they have dogs out there at all of my friends. I'm passed out in this closet that I was sure that he would see me come in, come get me. We'd go back. It'd be like, whatever. Um, so I wake up and uh, I had no idea this was going on. I just wake up. It's hours later. And I go back to my room. And because I've come just for my African deployment, they and they stuck me with another battalion. I'm back with my battalion now, but I have all my bags from Africa. And so, um, and they never went through my bag. So I have like this large knife in there. And before this happened, I'd started cutting myself because I was just like, I was losing it. And I told them I need to go to rehab. Like I can't do this. I can't be so confined and not have a purpose and have nothing to do all day. I'm going crazy, but I said it so calmly that they just didn't believe me because I'm not the kind of person that's going to like, oh my God. So it really like kind of worked against me. Um, 
So I ended up, I had a bunch of Motrin. I ended up taking a bunch of Motrin, um, cutting my wrist, like not meaning to kill myself, but just being like, can you see that I need help? Like, I cannot, I can't do this. I am going crazy. Um, and I really didn't know what else to do. So they found me. Um, I got put on 5150 for a couple of days and then miraculously a bed in rehab opened up. Um, so I go to rehab, uh, I decide I'm going to stop drinking. I'm in a like super vulnerable state cause I just went to rehab. Um, and I'm trying to work through some things. Um, and then I get back to my command and they put me back on restriction because they didn't know that I'd been drinking on restriction. It wasn't until I got to rehab and I, and they always breathalyze you when you get there that they found out that I'd been drinking. So they put me, you know, on restriction again. And at that point I was like, I mentally, I can't do this. Like, I just can't do another 30 days of restriction. Um, and so I went to the psychiatrist and was like, I can't do this. I need to get out. Um, and so that was like two years and eight months into my contract. Um, and so I got out uh, under honorable conditions with uh, failure to adapt. Hmm. I haven't heard yeah. that before. Failure to yeah, adapt. So, yeah. It, uh, so typically they won't use it when you've like done a few deployments and you've uh, it's like almost three years in. Typically they'll use it at the beginning. Um, so, but that was the only way that they could actually get me out because my command said they wanted to keep me in. They just wanted me to go through right, restriction again. But, um, but all the things they were doing, like they were really pushing on me. So I think they were trying to push me out. Do you feel let down by your command? Uh, yeah, I do, but it's not, it might not be their fault because, uh, you put them in such a position that. Well, there's that, of course. Yeah, okay. And then, but also, um, when I was in A school, they had me see a social worker who was like there as a therapist, and um, he decided to diagnose me with uh, antisocial personality disorder, which is not even close to what I have. I'm just I've been very traumatized uh, at, at that point, um, and everyone that I trust lets me down in right. really shitty ways. Um, so this paper follows me through all of my command and I have no idea until I go to rehab, uh, someone, uh, he was a drug and alcohol, uh, coordinator. He's like, Hey, do you know, this is in your record? And I was like, what? He's like, yeah, you don't have this. I don't know why this is in your record, but my commander was actually like a psychiatrist or something. Uh, cause with the CVs, you get, uh, commanders that are from the fleet. So they're not actually CV commanders. Um, so all our officers come from the fleet and they do rotations through the CVs. So, uh, I believe I heard, I don't, I've never like looked to see if this is actually true, but I've heard through rumors that he was under investigation because of all the people that got in trouble when he was the commander. So, um, so in that instance, like, I know I had some really great chiefs and I had a lot of leadership that really cared about me. I also had leadership that I went to like really struggling, pouring out my heart to trying to figure out how, like what was going on with me. I needed to get better. And turns out they just wanted to sleep with me. So I've had like a, you know, a continuum of leadership and I do feel let down by the, the CO of my battalion. Um, I don't feel left down by 
by my actual chiefs and stuff because um, I know I put them in a really challenging yeah. position. <laughs> Do you, at any point in time in rehab, or is there any point in time with anybody in the Navy, you disclose the prior abuse that you suffered, both at the hands of your father and other men? Uh, no. Okay. Um, I I probably did with counselors. I didn't okay. when I got into the military. Right. Um, and but I did with some of my counselors, I believe. Um, but I kept it close to my chest for sure. Looking back with the benefit of hindsight, um, why? Because uh, there's that whole stigma in the military, right? Of like, you know, obviously I was put in positions where like, obviously I had mental health struggles. And so, um, and it was the drinking that always led me to being seen by counselors. Um, and like, you, I just never know who to trust. Um, and obviously it was a therapist that like screwed me over most of all. Um, so yeah, it was just that, like, I never wanted to appear vulnerable to people. Um, even though it was like very obvious. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you're out of the Navy now. Um, do you know what's next for you? No. I've, well, I decided to go to school. Like it was always my goal to finish college. Um, at this point, I want to do exercise science. Um, okay. So, uh, so yeah, I get out. I I go back to school, um, and then I just you know the logical next step. I start partying a lot. Um, I'm already drinking, and then I find drugs. And the minute I start using stimulants, I stop blacking out. So for me, I was like, it was a lifesaver because all of a sudden the shit that was like super dangerous and like incredibly risky, uh, I'm able to actually have control over my drinking. That's a very weird, uh, I'm, I'm trying to put that all together. Um, I needed drugs to control my drinking is what you basically just said to me. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, yeah. So, cause I stopped blacking out when I had stimulants. So I could now drink as much as I wanted and I wouldn't black out. <laughs> I mean, I, th this has to end in a crash and burn somewhere, doesn't it? Oh, 100%. Okay. Yeah. All right. I'm like, I'm just trying to, I'm like, how much longer can, forget you, how much longer can your liver handle this? Dear Lord. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, fortunately, I was, uh, aside from like, I always lived like these two separate lives. Yeah. One, I was Super physically fit, fit and then just, you know, yeah. Yeah, I, know. I ate really well. Like I really cared about my physical health, but a huge thing was like, I couldn't sleep. I was like terrified to go to sleep because I had really bad nightmares. And in my nightmares, I would, someone was always trying to kill me and I would have to kill them in a super violent way. Like they wouldn't die. Just, I had to like stab them in the eye with a screwdriver or something. And so it was like, I wake up so tired every day. And every time I fell asleep, it was like this. I am not coming to the company retreat after that last comment. I'm <laughs> staying away from you. Just, I, don't, you I don't have these nightmares anymore. You, you stay over um, there. You stay away from the power tools. You're a CB. I don't even, I ain't having you fix anything in my house. That's for damn sure. Um, very handy with a screwdriver. <laughs> dear Lord. Uh, graphic. So, I mean, are, are you ever able at this point with the nightmares to figure out that it is the abuse that is triggering all this stuff. Um, yeah, I know that. Right. But 
it's it's not enough to know where it's coming from. You have to know how to unpack it. You have to know how to make it stop. Um, yeah, I absolutely know that okay. I've lived a really hard life um, and that I'm like perpetuating this by all the drinking. Um, but it, yeah, it's not enough to know. Right. So you're back in college. You're kind of working again and everything else. Um, you know, where where does the crash and burn happen? Um. So I started using meth eventually. And then I dropped out of college. Um, I was like not dating this guy, but I was with this guy. Uh, it was my fault. I did not change my oil on my car. And he ended up stealing my car one day. And then it started, the engine started grinding and he drove it for forever. So my car was wrecked. And, um, and then, so I couldn't get to school. So I dropped out of school, but I was kind of relieved because at that point, like I was using a lot of Coke. I hadn't fully gotten into meth yet consistently. Um, but you can't consistently use Coke. Like you have to, uh, so I went to the next level and I started smoking a lot of meth. Um, and I did that for five years. Wow. Yeah. Uh, man, I want off this roller coaster. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. this is the, yeah. So in the five years, if if you're not in school, are you just working or you? Uh, um. Yes, I was working as a dancer. So okay. um, I never wanted to be like someone that couldn't afford their drugs. Like if you don't have your own place to stay, if you can't afford your drugs, you're put in a pretty shitty position. Right. Um. And I never wanted to lose like that control. Gotcha. I'm uh, what's your relationship with your mom like through all this? Are you even speaking to her? Um, I rarely speak to her. Like I have, uh, I love my mom. Uh, and I can't tolerate speaking to her because she's so worried about me. Right. You know, our conversations are only like her being very concerned with me. And I always leave feeling very unhappy, like super depressed super upset. Anything that reminds me of my childhood at this point, like I just want to just just sure. smoke a bunch and drink a bunch. And so, yeah. what about your siblings? Um, they were, my mom actually told them that I was, uh, using drugs because she had this fear that I would try to get them to use them also, which I would have never done. So that made me pissed off too, to be like, you think that this drug is making me a totally different person than I am. And it's not like, I mean, drugs, drugs, in in my opinion, drugs enhance who you already are. And, uh, you know, like I was never somebody that uh, would steal or like hurt other people or things when I was using drugs, because I'm not like that when I'm off drugs. I did a lot of things I'm not proud of when I use drugs. Um, but uh, yeah. So anyways, that was... Um, they were super worried about me. Um, I maybe went home once a year for Christmas, but it's, it obviously got harder and harder because I tried not to, well, traveling with drugs is not very great. So, um, and then Nebraska, it's not easy to get, uh, I mean, it would be if you know, but um, it's not easy if you don't know the people. Um, So I started like, I'd be seriously going through withdrawals during holidays and I'd be like sleeping all the time, just very upset, very agitated. Um, so it just, it wasn't fun. Uh, I just wanted to be in this world where I was partying all the time, but partying and working. So it was that thing again, that like, I need to be making money. I need to have a purpose. I need to have a job. Um, and so I just created a job with this like huge issue that I was having of needing to like, just be numb constantly. So, uh, 
when do you finally get off all this stuff? Like, how does it end? So I ended up, uh, ended up losing my apartment. Um, and then I moved in with this guy and I thought like, well, I lived in hotels for like a month or two. Okay. Uh, and that was very stressful for me because like, obviously you're paranoid on drugs and then living in a hotel is just was super stressful. Um, so I moved in with this guy in the hopes that like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be in a place where I can sleep consistently so many nights in a row and I'm going to get my shit together, get my own apartment again. Um, and that just never happened. Uh, he was super abusive. Um, he was very violent and would just fly into a rage over nothing. Um, and then here I am like just smoking all day in his house, like doing nothing productive. Um, he started getting mad when I would go to work. And so it just became this other, you know, it's just your typical run of the mill domestic, domestic violence situation where they start, you know, squeezing that noose and, you know, getting more and more control over you. Um, he didn't give me a key to his apartment for like forever. And so I had to, like, he invited me in. But I could never leave or I would be stuck out. And so um, it just created this, you know, this shitty situation. I was there for like two years. Um, he rescued, like he rescued this little chihuahua and was super mean to it as well. And it was really interesting for me because I could tolerate him being mean to me, but I couldn't tolerate him being mean to this like innocent dog. And then I saw that he was treating the dog the way he treated me, where he had this idea that like, I give you shelter, I give you food, like, you can't, you don't need anything else from me. I'm, I'm not gonna. Um, and then I can treat you however I want. Like, it doesn't matter because I'm doing these things for you. Um, and so I started uh, taking this, like, I'm a big dog person. So when I saw this little dog, I was like, oh, I, I don't even want to touch this thing. But I started taking him on walks and started getting outside again. Um, and through this whole time, obviously, my self-esteem is getting hammered just being with this guy. And um, and the fact that I'm, you know, he he is making it very difficult for me to work. Um, and so uh, so finally, I he has money. So finally, I convinced him, like, do you think you could help me go to rehab? Because he's always acting like he's trying to help me get back into things. Um, and like, he wants me to get a job and all these things. But then anytime I try to like make steps in the right, in the right movement, he'll, uh, he will attack me or like, you know, do something that makes me like super upset and then want to just stay home. Um, so he paid for me to go to rehab. I took the dog with me. Um, and I was there, it was really cool. It was in Minnesota and it was, they, it wasn't like your typical talk therapy rehab. They gave you tons of vitamins, had you be on this super strict diet. Um, you were doing IVs and they really concentrated on like you've been using for a long time and your body is super depleted. So what we're going to do here is we're going to teach you the foods and the things you need. And we're going to, um, we're going to work on your body. And so the first night there, I slept through the night with no nightmares, and I had never done that ever. And then obviously, if you're smoking meth, like you can be up for three days, and then you just, just pass out. And so, um, and I'd only had a couple times that I'd come off with draws with meth, and like, 
it's uh, such a shitty experience. And it wasn't like that at all there. Like I didn't have any withdrawals and um, it was really cool because it was an outpatient program. So my family had, we like rented an apartment. My family got to come and uh, stay with me for like the whole time I was there. So it was this really cool, like healing experience and right up my alley of um, healing my body. And I think that's one thing that's so hard when people are trying to um, get off substances and, uh, you know, go through this, start this recovery process is that uh, your body is so depleted and it's really hard to sit through all these classes when you're just mentally not there and you Mm -hmm. feel like shit. So doing it this way was awesome for me. So I, I leave the rehab, I go back, I am living with him still. Um, I end up relapsing while I'm there and I'm just so grateful that I did because I now I'm not in like, I got sober and I never know what, like if I could go back or not, but, um, I had a glass of wine and I immediately wanted meth. And so that, um, but then after I smoked, I was like, I don't have to do this anymore. Like I, I found another way out. And so that was the last time I used, um, I called a guy to try to get some work and, uh, the guy I was living with flew into a rage, grabbed my phone and threw it and then went to work. And so I called the guy back and I was like, Oh, I'm so sorry. And he's like, you don't need a job. You need a place. Um, and so then I, uh, I went to the VA and, uh, I sent my dog. I, I was not going to bring the dog, but then I knew that, um, I would just hate myself forever if I left him there. So, uh, so I brought the dog. I like threw some stuff out of my car, brought the dog. He went to live with my family, uh, in Nebraska and I stayed and lived on the VA campus for six months. And while I was there in Nebraska um, or Oh, uh, the LA campus. Okay. So I was in LA at this time. Gotcha. Okay. And, uh, so the West LA VA campus, um, I lived there for six months and I was able to like harness all of those skills I had about like being very disciplined and having a purpose and, uh, you know, very goal oriented. And I took like everything that I had thrown into the addiction and I threw it into my recovery. Um, I was very fortunate that I got connected with a, an amazing, uh, trauma, um, a trauma therapy center in LA. And I went there, uh, five hours every day for, uh, five days a week for, um, like a few months, I think. And, um, I was finally able to unpack, you know, all of the abuse before the military, all of the abuse from the military, all the abuse after the military. And it gave me like this really great foundation that I could start rebuilding my life on. What's your relationship with drugs and alcohol now? Um, so I've been sober for five and a half years now. Congrats. Um, and they have been uh, the best years of my life. Six months at the VA center in LA. Uh, when that is complete, you find your own place now and you're back on your feet. What's happening next? Uh, so what's happening is uh, <laughs> the VA does the best they can. And sure. there is uh, half, half a floor, uh, four women and 300 male vets at this space, 300 homeless male vets. Um, some are great. Others are not. And it, very much was reminding me of the military of 
you know, you walk through somewhere and everyone, like a lot of people are leering at you. And I just, so it was that whole thing of like, I have to be on guard again. Um, and so my therapist was like, Hey, we got to get you out of there because you're not ever going to be able to heal unless you can be somewhere and you feel safe. So there's this really great, uh, rehab, uh, in, um, it was in Brentwood and they, uh, it's, it was, um, like a very, very, very expensive rehab. And they let me come stay there for like $200 a month. Um, and it was really cool for me. Uh, cause I felt very special, like, um, like a place where people really care about you and are taking care of you. And, um, they cooked like all organic meals for you and they had some programs for us and I felt safe. Um, so that was, I stayed there for like six months. Um, and I continued the therapy. Um, I went back to school and I started like that first year was like a lot of work. Um, but I was very much in this mindset of that, like, Hey, I'm starting at the bottom. Like things are shitty right now. Let me do all of the shitty things that I need to get done to set my life up. Um, so I went and filed my disability claim. Um, and, uh, like that's super traumatic experience, but I was doing all of this at once. So it was perfect. Um, no, I was just going to say, like, yeah, I did the same thing. I made sure I went through it all at one time, like went back for every injury and did the mental health stuff and the PTSD stuff all at one time because it's just such a pain in the ass to have to do yeah. two and three times. Yeah. Um, it's not it's not fun. So for any vets out there who haven't gone to the VA yet, when you go get all your shit together and do it all in one time, um, yeah. you know, just dump it all on them all in one stop. Like, just get like a whole, you know, dumpster and just turn it upside down and leave it on their desk. Um so how does how and when does merging vets and players come into the picture? So it's about I, I think I had I was either still living at the sober living or I had just gotten an apartment and um, I was in school at the time and it was on like a weird day. It was on like a Thursday in the middle of the day. So I couldn't go um, because I, I was also working um, and then uh, they did like a 12 strong screening of that movie. And so I, my friend invited me and I went and I was like, man, I really like these people. Um, Cause it took me a long time to come back to the veteran community. Sure. Um, while I was living on the VA campus, there was a veteran program called heroes movement and they do free strength and conditioning for vets. So like right at my alley. And so I started going to that and that was that was my first foray back into the veteran community because I wanted nothing to do with veterans at all, as many of us do when we get up. Um, and then I started like slowly through physical fitness, being able to like, okay, some people are great and I can, I can actually trust them. Um, and then I found merging vets and players and I went, I was drawn to it because of the fitness, of course. Um, And I went to my first meeting and uh, I had tried other veteran groups and I was like, these are cool, but um, it's not really what I'm looking for. Um, It doesn't make me feel great to be here. And I went there and all of a sudden I had this feeling of like, oh, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Like, these are my people. Mm -hmm. Um, and I don't know, it's just this feeling when you're in that room, it's like this community of people that are just, uh, I don't it's really hard to explain. Um, but yeah, I, I changed around my whole work schedule so that I could uh, start coming to meetings and I hardly missed any. Um, and actually my four-year anniversary is next week. 
Oh, wow. That is awesome. Yeah. Congratulations. Uh, and so you. obviously you went from just a member all the way up to the uh, director of training and resources for the company. So congratulations. And over the course of four years, I guess you, uh, you, you have risen through the ranks. <laughs> yeah. Yes. As I like to do. Um, um, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, so um, when you, when you kind of look back on um, merging vets and players and, you know, the way it came into your life. I mean, it sort of sounds almost, you know, like serendipity, but, uh, in the same respect, you know, uh, that, that physical component that's there, uh, obviously is, is the one thing that speaks to your language. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's the thing that drew, drew me in. Like what I really needed was connection with people, like deep connections that I could, uh, I needed people I could trust. Like I, I had gone my whole life where I couldn't tell people anything because I didn't know if they would use it against me. And finally, it was really cool. So I joined MVP and it, I had done a bunch of personal growth stuff right before that. So I was in very much in this mindset of like, even if it scares me, I'm going to say yes. Like if it's something I really want to do, I fuck it. I don't care. I'm just going to do it. So um, we got this opportunity. Uh, Bear Girls was doing a survival race. And so they wanted to hire some vets to come run like a war-torn village and shoot empty airsoft guns at people. <laughs> so I heard about this and I was like, oh, this sounds so much fun. But I don't know these guys. I have to go out and camp with them for like four days. Uh, but I was like, fuck it. Uh, I, this sounds so much fun. I don't even care. I'm going to do it. And um, so I went there and it was one of the funnest things I've ever done in my life. And I really got to know some of um, some of the OG members of MVP. And uh, there's just like, you know, there's really great people in the world. And there's really great people at MVP. Um, yeah. It's just this environment where we really care about each other. And we talk about such deep things. Um, and to have that experience of talking about some of your darkest, most shameful moments and having the group collectively be like, I understand and I have your back. And there's nothing that you said just now that makes me feel differently about you. Like I still a hundred percent accept you and actually accept you more like that yeah. experience is healing. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it, it, there's so much about the connection within the folks like, you know, again, and, and, you know, speaking of serendipity is, you know, like I run the Atlanta, the, the Atlanta chapter, but you know, I never intended to stay at MVP. Like I was only going to do it on an interim basis. Uh, Cause one of the co-founders, Nate Boyer, who is a former guest on the hazard ground had asked me to do it. And I've got a great relationship with Nate. And I basically told him like, if it was anybody else asking, I'd probably say no, but since it's you, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. And literally within a month, I was like, all right, I love this place. You know, uh -huh. it was just like working with you, working with Denver, working with everybody, you know, Noel, AJ, and you know, a lot of you don't know who I'm talking about, but anyway, you know, mm -hmm. the point is, is that it's just such a, it's, it's one of those organizations where the people truly are where the rubber meets the road and they make such a, a genuine difference every single day. Uh, and it's just like, yeah, I want to wrap my round, wrap my arms around all you guys and tell you how much I love you. Cause it's been just such an, a, such an amazing experience working with you guys every day, you know, like whatever else goes on at the highest levels, I don't care about. I get to, I get to work with you in Denver. And like I just said, all the other people on a routine basis week to week. And it just, it, it, it always brings a smile to my face. There's always just a, a level of connection that, you know, you don't really find anywhere else. Um, Maybe you find it in the military still, you know, if you're in the right spot, obviously it might not have been the same for you, but still, you know, it's, it's that sort of organization that, um, you know, it's just so welcome. It makes you, gives you a sense of purpose and makes you really feel at home. So, 
you know, just uh, from me to you, it's always been pleasure to uh, to work alongside you. I've got nothing but the utmost respect for you, and uh, you're one of the most genuine people within the company, one of the most genuine people I've met, and so I, I, I am certainly glad that, you know, we, we've got a great uh, professional relationship, so it, it's been a pleasure working alongside you every day. Well, thank you. That, I mean, that means a lot, and uh, yeah, love working with you as well, and um, yeah, I definitely want to make a trip out to Atlantic. <laughs> Yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of on my own out here. All you all you guys just leave me to my own devices, which is a problem. Um, let me ask you: uh, if you could go back and change one relationship, would you rather change the relationship with your father or a relationship with drugs and alcohol? Um, well, funny. If I change the relationship with my father, it would probably change my relationship with drugs and alcohol. Fair enough. Uh, but definitely. Uh, well, I, let me let me rephrase, let me rephrase it this way then. What had which relationship had more of a negative impact on you? The one with your father or the one with drugs and alcohol? Oh, my father for sure. Okay. Um, right. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's just that double. It's it's that double punch in the gut of like, this is the person that is supposed to take care of you, yep. and and also when you see because of growing up in such an insulated environment, a lot of what, what you uh, like when we got out of the cult, we got that was when Netflix had just started having uh, CDs. Or, or um dvds and so we would we got that like you could get two and you can get them as many as you wanted so my brother and i we watched like every movie there was to watch because we couldn't watch any movies in the cult right um so we did this deep dive into pop culture because we knew nothing about it and that's very weird as a 16 year old um and so a lot of what we knew of how people interacted was through movies and so you always see this like this ideal of, you know, the father who's about to like shoot off, you know, the boyfriend's head because he cares so much about his daughter. And I was like, <laughs> you know, it's just like very, you know, it's silly, but it's like, uh, you always hear that dads care, especially so much about their daughters and want to protect yeah. them maybe too there, much. And yeah, there, there is no more damaging thing to do to a child than as a parent to not give them the protection and security that they need. Right. We always talk about children as being innocent and they can't the adults in the room have to be the ones to protect them because they can't protect themselves. And when you remove that, that that protection, that security that is supposed to be provided by parents, there is no more harm outside of abuse, physical and, and, and sexual abuse. You know, there's really no greater harm you can do to a child uh, than that. And, I, and, I, and I've learned that and I've seen it up close uh, within my own family uh, and my wife's family. And, and obviously with yours, it's just. um you know, you learn that as, as, as a parent, you know, that's the only thing you want to do. You know, I mean, you, you say it all the time. It's like, you know, if you came after my kid, I'd rip your head off. Like, you know, that's just, that's the sort of instinct you want to have, um, and always want to have. So, you know, again, uh, and, and, you know, it, it doesn't have to be to the length. I even think certain, you know, kids who, whose parents divorced, you know, simple as that feel that sort of lack of security. Um, it doesn't yeah. always have to be this this grand, you know, big thing. And again, I'm not comparing one as better or worse than the others. They just all have uh, different effects on different people. Yeah. And and one thing, though, is like um, there is nothing about my life that I would change. I mean, obviously, uh, my military career would have gone much further if I didn't have alcohol issues. Uh, and that would have been very interesting to see how that could have played out. Um, and. Uh, you know, I really feel like the trauma, especially now that I'm in sitting in the space I am now, the trauma that I dealt with for 30 years, because I'm 35. So uh, I was so sad for 30 years, and I had such a hard life. 
for me. It was just like, there was not a lot of joy there. Right. Um, but it, it gave me this drive to find like the, the joy and the peace that I was looking for. And, um, some people just have, you know, cool lives, like great lives. And, and there may never be that need to like find the deep healing that I had to find. And once you remove, uh, drugs and alcohol and you take away that numbness, like I had no choice, but to find myself and to find like what brings me joy and what brings me happiness. Like I have to have a reason to be living here. And because I had to do that uh, and continue to do it, like it's not, it's not something that ever ends. Like I absolutely love uh, now I'm just collecting like really cool uh, experiences that like feed my soul. And that's part of my recovery. That's part of my survival. Like I can't go on in life unless I do that. And that brings me, uh, so much joy. And I, it's, I feel like it's such a gift. Where are you, uh, with reconciling all, uh, the abuse you suffered, sexual rape, all that other stuff. Cause you talk about it. I almost want to say confidently, if that's the right way to phrase it, cause it's not nonchalant, right? You know, no one's like, Oh, I was raped. Yeah. Just, you know, and then I had a hot dog, you know, like, it's not like that. <laughs> um, but you seem to say it with such, you know, um, you know, portraying of strength, is it something that you've been able to, to reconcile? Is that the case? Uh, yeah, I, okay. I mean, I went through a lot of trauma therapy. Um, and I think it's really important. Like if I wouldn't have been, if I wouldn't have, and it's like, it's the right therapy. It's not just uh talk therapy. Uh, so for me personally, I did brain spotting and somatic experiencing. And, um, the idea of that is that you release those emotions from your body because when shit happens to us, doesn't matter what it is. We hold as human beings, we have this idea that we need to hold everything in and not show things, not show vulnerability or emotions. Um, and that's for men and women. Uh, and you have to be tough and just keep going. And especially in the military community, um, and the athlete community that we work with as well. Um, so you have years and years of trauma that you're storing in your body. Like it just cannot physically handle it. And that's why things were like overspilling in Africa or like with my dad, just at random times. And so I had to take 30 years of trauma and unpack it. And it took, you know, five hours every day for five days a week for like three months. Um, And I was able, because I did that, I am in the space that I'm in today and it is a hundred percent worth it. Um, I love about myself that I go full in and I don't take steps back. Um, right. And that's, I mean, obviously trauma is a, you know, it's, it's a wavy uh, road to healing. It's not straightforward. And there are things that we do ourselves that uh, give us healing. And there's things we do that pull us away from healing. And so all we can control is ourselves. I can't control what's you know happening around me. So I really went deep into myself and figured out how can I heal these wounds and how, how can I create practices in my life that are taking me forward and I'm being the person I say I want to be um, and doing the things that I know I need to do and that bring me joy, bring me peace, make me feel stable. Um, it's just, you know, it's a daily practice and um, it's so worth it. Like it pays such dividends. Where are you with being able to trust people now? I mean, is it still a struggle for you? Um, I'm much better. Uh, so I, my boyfriend laughs at me because a lot of times when I go into new situations, I, I'm very closed off and like, 
Uh, well, I guess when I first went to MVP, I worked out. I didn't talk to a single person and I just kind of like sat there. Um, so I very much still do that in new situations. Uh, but once I get to know people, um, I understand how much connection matters. And uh, and that whole, you know, it's like, I think a lot of people say, like, I'm not good at showing emotions or I'm not good at being vulnerable or trusting. But it's like, okay, you're not good at it if you don't practice it. Some of us didn't have the opportunity to start learning that stuff when we were young. So you got to start now. And the only way you get good at it is by doing it with people that you trust. And fortunately, MVP gives us this great place to go every week and talk about whatever's going on and to really lean into vulnerability. And vulnerability creates trust, like vulnerability with the right people. Um, And I've just sought out like growth experiences in any place I can get them. And fortunately for the veteran community, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of experiences and spaces that are trying to help us. And I leaned into all of them uh, wholeheartedly. And um, each one brought me different pieces on my healing journey. And each one was like very important. Um, so, yeah. Uh, what would be a message to anybody who has, um, you know, been abused, raped or had a sexual violence against them? Like what? And they're afraid to say something. What would you tell them? Huh. The one thing that we can control like is ourselves. Um, And so, I mean, there's just, there's so many layers to abuse. Um, I I think the first most important thing is you have to get into a safe space. You can't heal from abuse if you're still in a space where you feel like you're being abused. Um, There's always help out there. So reach out to someone. Uh, If you have someone that you trust, reach out to them, like, it's really important to get professional help and it's really important to uh, to find a team of people. And sometimes it takes a while to build that. Um, but for me, I definitely, uh, I went to a domestic uh, violence um, community because like they really understand what's happening to you. Um, and, you know, it just seems, it seems devastating Um But at the end of the day, like when you go through something very traumatic, all of a sudden you're given this great path where you can heal from it. Like there's so much healing in the community and uh, within ourselves. So you just have to go out and find it. Um, And also just know you're not alone. Like this happens to a lot of people. Unfortunately. Yeah. (laughs) Like there's a lot of us out there. And, uh, you know, I, I think I think with this new generation, I, I believe that we're going to start hearing more stories of like, this is what happened to me. And this is how I got to where I am. Because any stories that I hear of people that like, we really value in history, they've gone through like these very devastating moments in their life. And we just don't know about it. But it's because of those moments that they've gone, they've gotten to elevate to this greatness. And I think we're at a space where we're, we're ready to start talking about like, it's not in spite of all of these troubles that I've gone through that I'm able to get to this place. It's because of all of them. Right. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's what gives me so much healing. And, and um, I really had to, another huge piece that I got is I had to go back and I had to integrate, integrate, or um, integrate, integrate. Yes. My, my whole self. Cause for a long time, I, 
I was kind of disgusted by the part of me that like used and drank. And then I had this experience. I don't remember where it was, but I really saw that like, that was the part of me that carried me through the hardest parts in my life. And to try to say like, you didn't do good enough. Um, you know, fuck you, whatever was really hurting like a deep part of me that kept me alive through, you know, 30 years of different kinds of difficulties. And when I was able to fully embrace my full self and realize that I've done the best I could with what I had every step along the way. Um, and it was those parts of me that got me to who I am now and able to really experience life fully and uh, have so many uh, great relationships and great experiences. Um, that was the most healing thing for me is, you know, being able to walk around as a whole person. I think what's paramount about what you said, um, for a long time, we have been, when it comes to rape, sexual violence, sexual assault, and all those things, we've been telling the story of the victim and the victim experience. We haven't been telling the story of the triumph and the aftermath. And I think yeah. that's an excellent point that you bring up that that's going to start to be the focus. Like I said, when you said I was raped before and you said it with such confidence, it was like it was something that happened you know, almost like, hey, I broke my leg and I had to rehab and recover and now I'm healed, but I'm doing all these other things. Um, and it's not to belittle any sort of sexual violence or rape or anything like that. But you just I think it, it was made a lot more clear when you explained that I think we're going to start to tell more stories of the triumph and the aftermath than necessarily hear the lamenting of the bad stuff. We're going to start to celebrate the the, the postscript, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I also think like so much attention is put on the victim and not on the perpetrator. So it becomes like this whole thing about um, about that, you know, male or female, it doesn't matter, but it becomes about the victim and not about, hey, this person did something really, really shitty for you. And uh, it's it's about like the whole community coming together and being like, Hey, uh, I don't want to, I'm not going to tolerate that. Like if I see that I'm not going to tolerate it. And that's one of the hard things about the military community is like this shit's still happening. And, and we know it's a huge problem in the military. Um, my sister actually thought about joining and I strongly discouraged her from doing that. She's a doctor and has a PhD and I was like, no, you don't want to be in the military. Um, but she talked to, I, I told her like straight up that, you know, a lot of women in the military are raped. Like, it's just a matter of fact. And, um, and uh, so she told this uh, recruiter that was, um, it was actually a drill sergeant that was talking to them. And her answer was just don't drink with anybody that could overpower you. And I was just like, oh. cool. And you are part of the problem. You know what I mean? And so it's, uh, yeah. I I hope by being able to share our stories about what happens in the military, um, like we need a change. And it's not, it's not against, like it's certain people in the military that are doing it to a lot of people. And we need to empower men and women to be able to stand up against them. And this is not like a female problem uh you know both males and females uh get assaulted in the military more than we want to yeah. talk about mm -hmm. and um it's a problem that it's tolerated and and it's a problem that it's happening to junior troops and we don't value those troops as much as we value the people doing it um and uh until we can make a change in the 
military, we have to create programs for women and men that are coming out um, because it is devastating yeah. because it's happening by people that you think are like your brothers and sisters. Um, so it's a, just another level of like devastation. Um, and like I said, anytime you go through anything difficult, there's just that, uh, that huge chance of healing. And anytime we look inward and uh, try to heal what's going on, there's just so much growth that comes from that. Very well said. I won't, uh, I won't try to add on. Uh, one final question. What do you miss the most about the Navy and the military? Um, I loved, uh, so you did say something about camaraderie and I just want to make it clear that like, I had so much camaraderie in the military, despite like shit that was happening. I loved the people I served with and I loved being part of a team and uh, I love being part of like a really efficient, effective team that would just go out and build shit and make shit happen. And um, the biggest thing that I miss is, uh, is that every day you had this like insurmountable challenge in front of you that you're like, well, how are we going to do this? And then you just like dive in and do it. And it, and it, that is an amazing feeling. Unfortunately, with MVP, they're not insurmountable challenges, but uh, I get to be like, that's what I loved about walking into that first session is I never thought I would feel that camaraderie that I felt in the military. I thought that was like a part of my life and it was great, but I felt that I feel that at MVP and I get to uh, be in a very challenging environment doing a lot of really important work and um, that I love that it really uh, feeds my soul and I feel very very honored to be able to do this work and um, just blessed to be like in this uh, environment. Well, again, uh, if you would have told me coming into this, that uh, the two deployments were the easiest part of your life, I probably wouldn't (laughs) have believed it, but uh, that seems to be the case that the two deployments were the easiest part of your life. But uh, again, um, nothing but respect and admiration for uh, your entire journey and the one that you're currently on right now staying clean and sober, impacting and changing lives, uh, continuing to better yourself and all those things are just, you know, kind of the core tenets of, of some of the, the themes that we always discuss on here. And so, I, again, uh, much love to you for everything you're doing for MVP and, and certainly uh, being able to professionally get to get to work with you every day is, is, a, is a blessing and an absolute uh, joy uh, to do every single day. But um, hearing your story and, and knowing what you overcome, I just uh, my esteem and, and respect for you grew just a little bit more. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah, this is this is really cool. Thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, it's great to be able to share my story. And each time I do, you know, you get a little more healing from it. So this has been cool. We hope so. Andy Ward, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. Thank you. You've been listening to Kill Cliff's Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.